Well, what a joy it is to have days like this, this season of blessings where we do see all the children come forward with their backpacks. And, you know, even if we are not still school-aged or we are not teachers, I think we can all think back to what it felt like to be in that back-to-school season. Of course, there is some sadness about not being able to sleep in anymore and about all the homework to come. But there's also excitement about meeting our teachers, about being with our friends again. And I think even getting back into a routine is something that we look forward to. Two weeks ago, we had Meet the Teacher here at Ashland Place Preschool. And on this day, children and their parents are invited to come to see the classrooms, to meet the teacher, to share about their child's routine, to learn about the pickup and drop off, you know, the whole orientation basically for parents. And for the, for the past four years, this day has not really affected me. But this year, I went as a parent, which felt a little silly. I went with our unnamed, unborn, no routine, no shots, who knows what she's like child, and got to meet the teacher. They did not meet her, but, you know, they met me. Michael was working, so he couldn't come. But it was really interesting to be a part of that. And I guess I got to see why it can be so emotional and special to have these moments where you meet the teacher. You start being able to picture where your child is going to be during the day, and you feel a deep sense of appreciation for the people who care for them. I think sometimes we think about teachers like a Pinterest board, you know, with the beautiful bulletin boards, and they're organized, and they have all the sticky notes. But being a teacher is so much more. It takes a level of dedication and commitment and selflessness beyond that of the normal human capacity. In elementary school, I had a favorite teacher, and his name was Mr. Hughes. He was my fifth grade teacher at Roslinton Elementary School. And I think back to him as one of the best because he was engaging, he was funny, he was smart, and he spoke to us like we were on the same level, even though we were in fifth grade. And at the time, we thought he spoke to us as adults, but now looking back, I can see that he lowered himself to speak to us like he was in fifth grade as well. Mr. Hughes was known for helping students learn to write quality essays. That was like his thing that he was known for. Along with helping us learn proper grammar and formatting for these essays, he helped us see the worlds that could be opened up through writing, through using our imagination, through creativity in writing. By the end of fifth grade, the progress was undeniable across the fifth grade class. But what was really cool about Mr. Hughes is people would come to him and say things like, wow, we had no idea that these kids had it in them. How did you do this? How did you help them learn these things? And he would never take the full credit for himself. He would always say, well, I mean, I didn't teach them to sit or stand or read or write. I simply built upon the building blocks that other people had laid and helped them learn new tools along the way. Perhaps you have a favorite teacher, too, that you think back on with fondness and love and appreciation. Whether they taught preschool or 12th grade, no doubt they were dedicated to helping you grow, learn, and mature. The best teachers do this in a way that is relatable. They don't simply lecture all day long or read from a textbook or just play video lessons. They do things that are interactive 
They dig into the, the learning with the students. They lower themselves to the student's point of view so that you can engage and connect with one another. They are creative, they're innovative and unique because, well, that's how children learn is through those ways. Well, in our passage this morning, Jesus is the masterful teacher. While there are only five short verses in this passage, Jesus takes a question he uses an object lesson, and he expands the question to help them understand something deeper about the kingdom of heaven. The passage begins with what seems like a simple question. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? We can hear this question a few ways. It's a theological question about the kingdom of God, which Jesus has been teaching about, it's a status question about how Jesus measures greatness, but it's also a question that reveals the disciples' need to be seen as worthy or important. It's a bit like asking, Jesus, which one of us do you like the best? Jesus perceives their insecurity in this question, and he answers by, I imagine, picking up a child and putting it right in the middle of them. It wasn't unusual for Jesus to interact with children. Throughout his ministry, Jesus rose to life a 12-year-old girl who had died. When Jesus fed the 5,000, the gospel writers are clear to say that he also fed the women and children. During a funeral procession, Jesus stopped and raised the young son of a widow who had died. Jesus heals a woman's daughter who was possessed by demons. And Jesus healed a little boy with epilepsy. While these seem like normal Jesus stories to us because we've heard them over and over again, it's important to remember that in the ancient society, children were not seen with any sort of status or importance. They were powerless. They were overlooked. They were simply not important. The word for child in this passage comes from the Greek word paideon, and the root of that is pais, which is where we get the word servant. So that kind of helps us understand how children and servants were understood with about the same level of importance and status in the ancient society. So when talking about greatness, usually the models that were pointed to were kings and powerful leaders. But instead, Jesus points to a small human and says, this is what is great in the kingdom of heaven. In Mark's account of this same story, it says, people were bringing little children to Jesus in order that he might touch them. The disciples spoke sternly to him. But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant and said to them, let the little children come to me and do not stop them, for it is to such as this that the kingdom of God belongs. Neither text tells us really anything about the child. We don't know how old they were. We don't know if it was a boy or a girl. We don't know if they knew they were a part of this object lesson for the disciples. We don't know if they had any conversation with the adults that were surrounding them, if they were squirmy, if they were happy, if they were fussy. But really, I guess that's not the point. The point is that Jesus used a child to demonstrate something bigger. While the disciples want to have a serious, adult, theological conversation about greatness in the kingdom of heaven, 
Jesus puts a small, dependent child in their midst and changes their focus. So after Jesus has placed the child in the middle, he says to those around him, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus has been with the disciples for some time now, and he knows them pretty well. He knows that the answer to this question that they have asked is going to be hard for them to receive. It will threaten their egos, perhaps, their understanding of who they are, of what they're trying to be in the world. It will be unusual. It will be confusing. And there are times when God knows we do need to be confronted with something that we can't ignore, a physical subject in front of us rather than an abstract answer in order to really understand the truth that God is trying to get across. So what does it mean to become like children? Well, I can't help but think about what happened in the service last week if you were here. We had just finished singing the song, God, You're So Good. And it's one of those songs that ends, and it ends like very lightly. And you might think you're just going to dwell in the silence that lingers for a moment in that sweet time of worship. But if you were here last week, do you remember what a child said loudly and audibly? Yay! <laughs> and they didn't say it like that. They said like, yay! And like clapped. And it caused everyone <laughs> to smile and to laugh and to audibly also be like, actually, you know what? Yay, that's right. God is so good. That is what we're supposed to do. But an adult would probably never do that, right? If an adult did that at the end of a worship song, we'd kind of be like, that was a little strange, right? Because it's unusual. It could be seen as disruptive. Or is it exactly what we're supposed to do? Letting the Holy Spirit move us in those moments of worship. And if we feel like, yay, when a song of worship ends, maybe that's exactly what it means to become like children. After all, children don't care about what's socially acceptable or right. Children like to make noise. They're brutally honest. They are trusting. They're curious. They're vulnerable. They're bold. They're playful. And children have a way of bringing this out of adults. Who here hasn't found themselves speaking in a voice that is not your own when communicating with a baby or a young child? Or while hanging out with a child, who hasn't found themselves getting on the floor to play with them, to imagine, to sing, to dance, things that we wouldn't typically do with our other adult friends? Perhaps becoming like a child is accepting the invitation to be humble, to lower our walls, and to be our authentic selves, despite the world's emphasis on power and greatness and importance. The passage ends with Jesus saying, Whoever welcomes such a child in my name welcomes me. Well, knowing now that children had a very low status in society, we can use passages like this to challenge who we welcome in our lives, in our churches, into what we consider the socially acceptable group. It may convict us to remember those who have been placed in front of us and to wonder how we can extend welcome. 
It may recall to us Jesus's words in Matthew where he says that caring for the least of these, those who are hungry, thirsty, naked, in prison, in need of clothes, when you do those things, you care for me. Jesus was known for associating with the lowly, bringing in those people who were on the margins, and he expects that we, his disciples, will do the same thing. But even as we seek to broaden our understanding of welcome and inclusion in the kingdom of heaven, we can't ignore the fact that this passage is about actual children. It's not one that we have to make abstract. It is about little children that God has placed in their midst. So on this day, when we have celebrated the academic year, which is fully launched at this point, I'm filled with gratitude for the people that not only care for our children at school, but also for those who take seriously the spiritual lives of children here. Because while the Monday through Friday learning is crucial, so too are the spiritual foundations that are laid when we gather together as a church community. Certainly, not all of us are called to be children's directors or even children's teachers. And if you don't like children, you probably shouldn't volunteer with them. But still, there are ways that we can welcome and care for children, even if that is not our natural talent. As the body of Christ, there are many ways that we can be involved. We have an amazing children's ministry here at Ashland Place. And while it may not be the biggest one in town, we've got a lot of amazing things going on. Right now, the children who are all up here are in Children's Chapel. They're learning a version of the same thing that we're learning right now about how God blesses and welcomes and tells adults to become like children. During the Sunday school hour, they do a different sort of lesson. Today, there's going to be an ice cream social of sorts, so they also have fun together. In third grade, our children receive a special Bible, marking this time in their lives. In sixth grade, they go through confirmation, a year-long time of learning about the Christian roots, our Wesleyan roots. We have a spark service where children get to be creative like their creative God, and that's starting back in September. We have vacation Bible school. We have trunk or treat. We have the children's nativity. We have the Palm Sunday egg hunt and many more things. But even beyond just our church ministries, we have a Monday through Friday ministry here with our preschool. All of those families who come into the church, we consider part of the ministry of Ashland Place. I also wonder how many children benefit from the food and love that you show through the Joseph Project, through that support. And with our United Methodist Connections, we've supported and prayed for children right here in Mobile through Babies First, through Embrace Alabama Kids, all the way to Tanzania and Honduras. So what does it mean to be great in the kingdom of heaven? That is at the heart of this passage. That is what started the conversation, and that is what Jesus is answering throughout. Jesus, the masterful teacher, has used this object lesson and not only does he show that in his kingdom, greatness is flipped on its head, but he also says that if we want to be a part of that kingdom, we have to change and welcome children along the way. 
So I wonder which part of this passage is speaking to you today. Might God be calling you to become like a child, to lower your walls a bit? Maybe God is calling you to serve or to give in a new way. Or are there ways that our church can be more welcoming to actual children in our community? As we wrestle with these questions, may we seek the kind of greatness that is honored and valued in the kingdom of heaven. In the name of God, our creator, redeemer, and sustainer. Amen.